Hi, I'm Karen Osborne, and this is Living in the Sandwich Zone, a place where each week we talk all things parenting, caregiving, juggling life, and reclaiming joy. Hi, and welcome back to Living in the Sandwich Zone. So this week, our conversation is all about shame. And shame, if you've listened to, (laughs) if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you'll probably realize that shame is sort of this common thread. Guilt and shame, they just weave in and out of so much of my experience as a parent, as a caregiver, and just as a person overall. So I, I have been aware of how much shame has sort of hamstrung me in my life. And as a result, I follow the research on shame quite a bit. And one of the researchers that I follow is my guest today, Dr. Christopher Germer. Chris Germer is an expert on the topic of shame, and more importantly, an expert on how to counteract the damaging effects of shame. So I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory here. When I started this podcast, I was pretty much talking almost exclusively, either solo on my own, which are a lot of what you've heard so far, or I've been talking with friends, people I've sort of known. And that is really easy. It comes very naturally to me. And, you know, when I'm inspired, I just hop on, hit record, and speak my heart. Well, with Dr. Germer, I had a little fangirl moment in that the opportunity to speak with him and interview him and talk with him about shame was really big to me because I have followed his work. I have taken a class from him. I, you know, kind of hold him in a position of elevated reverie. Through a mentor and friend, Tina Gibson, I was connected to Dr. Germer and we coordinated a time to talk. And so this episode was actually recorded way back at the beginning of the year, and I'm only airing it now after coming to terms with a lot of things that didn't go quite right with this interview. So Dr. Germer is a clinical psychologist and part-time lecturer on psychiatry at the Harvard School of Medicine, and he is the author of the book, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. He is also an expert on the topic of shame. Along with Dr. Kristen Neff, who I actually just shared a couple episodes ago, some profound wisdom I learned from her teachings, together they co-created and developed a course on mindful self-compassion, an eight-week training program that's available to the general public. They also have authored together a mindful self-compassion workbook and 
a book on teaching the mindful self-compassion program. So if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Germer's work, you can go to his website at chrisgermer.com and you can follow him on Instagram at Christopher Germer PhD. So let's get to it. Let's talk shame. Here's my conversation with Dr. Chris Germer. Hello again. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Let me just adjust this so I can see you better. Great. How was your weekend? Um, it was a blur. <laughs> it was that long ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I am so grateful and appreciative for your willingness to do this all over again. Um, sure. I have to, I have to confide and confess and let you know that, um, it was definitely losing that recording and not capturing it triggered a shame response in me. <laughs> and I, I think that I had a lot of um, apprehension and anxiety about interviewing you because oh, okay. you're a person that I admire, that I follow your work, that I, I just felt like this is a really big ticket right here. And oh. for me, <laughs> Not, you know, I went through when I got off our call and I looked at the recording. It looked like it all captured. Oh, that was a bad moment. And I went to play it and I could see this wonderful, vibrant visual with absolutely no audio. And I tell you. All of the little voices unleashed in my head. It's like, how could you mess this up? I cannot believe you've ruined this interview opportunity. And um, I'm really glad that we had just spent an hour together talking about shame. Because truly, I, and I kid you not, truly, I kind of went through the steps. I was like, okay. Mm. I said, this, I feel... I feel a wash of humiliation and embarrassment and shame. Mm -hmm. Mm. And, and then it was a a sort of fairly quick transition to, okay, Karen, talk yourself off the ledge. So many people have this tech glitch experience where, you know, you're on zoom. And even when we started last time, I was on mute and you had to say, you know, you're on mute. I was like, oh, I can't believe I was on mute. But, um, but yeah, so I think I, I kind of having had the, I don't know, the tutoring intensive from you for an hour, it was helpful Mm -hmm. to move into that common humanity piece of it. And then I was like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do in this moment to feel better? And it was really talking myself into sending you that email. Mm. I just, there was a fierce self-compassion part, the motivating yourself to do something difficult. Yeah. So you had a, you had a complete practice experience. Boy, complete practice experience. The, The tender compassion, which is, oh, this hurts, you know, I'm probably not the only person in the world who ran into technical technical different difficulties, self-kindness, but also motivating yourself afterwards based on that 
tender compassion into doing something that, you know, required a little fortitude, which is to say, can we do this again? Yeah, it really did. And it was, I did, you know, as soon as I hit send, I did feel a little better, but of course I felt loads better when I received your compassionate response. So I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful to you for that. And I am so appreciative. Yeah. Well, as I said, I actually, I rather enjoyed our hour together. So I thought, Oh, I'll have another hour with Karen. That's fine. You know, <laughs> that's, that's probably why you got such an easy yes. answer. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I think, I think I just want to kind of recut recap where we went last time. It was, it was interesting after spending so much time for me in the prep phase, getting ready to just try to hit so many things. I think because this conversation about shame is very personal to me because I recognize that in my own experience, I'm hamstrung by shame quite a bit. And I, you know, I think last time I said it was, Shame is my kryptonite for connection. Mm. Mm. It is what breaks me down and makes me withdraw and close in on myself and isolate. And I see it in my marriage. I see it in my work. I see it in my relationships with friends. And so for me, I see the dismantling of shame as a really, really big part of moving forward into a rich and satisfying, positive life. Mm. So why I really wanted to connect with you is because, because of that, because right now in my sandwich zone experience of parenting and caregiving and trying to connect with people on a deeper level. I want to figure out this piece of how to work with shame. And so as a parent, and I think as a person, I go to the place we started last time, which is nature versus nurture. Are we just born inclined to be shame-based beings? Or is it in our DNA? Is it just, you know, based on our parenting or experiencing in life, experiences in life? Talk about that and let's start there. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so shame is in our DNA, which means we all have the capacity to feel shame. Just about everybody in the world has the capacity to feel shame. But uh, whether it is in our daily experience uh, is more likely the result of uh, our uh, experience in the world, particularly how we've been treated, the messages that we received as children, the messages that we receive as adults in our culture. Uh, And when we receive you know, devaluing messages over and over again, inevitably we internalize them and then we start to do the same to ourselves. So yes, we're all born with the capacity for shame, but when shame becomes sort of part of the fabric of our lives, it's inevitably because of 
uh, our experiences after we were born in life. I'm definitely, I think as a parent, I am definitely cognizant and aware of the things I do and how I interact with my children. And despite my best efforts, there are occasions where I may be out of exhaustion or frustration or, you know, just overwhelm in general, or just inadvertency that I say something that is shame inducing to my child. And I think that is really one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in is how, how do we take what we know and what we've experienced and, and either protect or inoculate our kids so they don't fall down the shame hole like I find myself falling down it. Uh, your kids will not fall down the shame hole because of your awareness, Karen. <laughs> it's when we don't know what we're doing and, and the impact of our behavior on young hearts and minds that it, it can really get away from us. But so, for example, the difference between shame and guilt is shame means I am bad and guilt means I did something bad. So when a child you know, needs correction, how does a parent respond? You know, if a parent is really upset, they're likely to do the shaming thing, which is you bad child. But if a parent has some measure of balance, uh, then the child is, the parent is more likely to say to the child, you know, uh, you really shouldn't do that because, you know, it has this impact or that impact, or I need you to stop doing that rather than you are a bad person. So, you know, if a parent is really upset, they're more likely to shame their child. And it's also inevitable that parents get really upset and do shame their children. And so ultimately, we don't need to like, you know, beat up on ourselves as parents when we have shamed the child. But what we do need to know is to what we do need to know is to that we did it. And that, in fact, this is an opportunity for repair. So we're not saying, oh, the behavior was fine that the child did. What we're saying is, I don't think I uh, addressed this behavior in the best possible way. And then, for example, to remind the child that, you know, how much the child is loved, to, to share with the child that you know how the child is feeling. In other words, to provide an accurate mirror for the child's experience so that the child once again feels in connection and valued and loved. And then from that foundation to perhaps to address whatever the behavior is that needed to be addressed, um, if, if it's still relevant. Let's, let's talk about that repair process a little bit more deeply. So for example, if parent says, parent has the experience of their kid comes home without their backpack, and this is the fourth, fifth, sixth time that the backpack has is nowhere to be seen. And the parents like, I am so sick of this. I, you know, you are so irresponsible. This is just unacceptable. Don't you have any care or value for property? You launches into a tirade about that. And you can, you know, I can imagine being on the receiving end of that and just shrinking and feeling horrible and just feeling like I'm worthless and no good, how does a parent 
how would you advise a parent when they calm down and they realize, oh, that was not a good encounter? How would you advise them to circle back and repair that with their child? Yeah, so I think that it's, first of all, necessary for a parent to understand why the child keeps losing the backpack. You know, it's quite possible the child has like attention, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or something. You know, it could be that there's some neurological reason the child is, you know, not remembering the backpack. And people who have ADHD um, receive these kind of comments that you've described a lot. And, and then they actually feel just really bad about themselves, like I'm fundamentally defective. And parents feel terrible, you know, not being able to address the problem. And then often, for example, there comes an issue of like, okay, so what's worse, dealing with ADHD without medication (laughs) or with medication? In other words, what will it take for me as a parent not to be in the position where I shame my child? Sometimes we need to actually do a more, you know, comprehensive analysis of how this, why this problem keeps appearing. But let's assume that, um, that that has been done, then, you know, how can the parent respond differently, you know? And, and I think that would come out quite, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom that naturally comes out of a parent when they're not emotionally hijacked by the situation, you know? So for example, what, what do you think, Karen, how might, what, how might you or a mom or dad respond when, when, when they understand way better what exactly was involved that the child kept losing the backpack? You know, how, how might for you me, for me, whenever I make, you know, what I think is kind of a catastrophic, catastrophic parental error, the biggest thing for me with my kids is going back to my kids and admitting I made a mistake and saying, you know what? I said that. And I said that out of frustration and I said it out of anger in the moment. And I'm really sorry for that because Mm. that was not okay. And I Mm. saw in looking at you, that it made you feel bad and it wasn't my intent Mm -hmm. to hurt you and to really let my children know that I mess up and that that's part of when I get overwhelmed, that that happens and to really apologize. When I, when my kids were really little and they would hurt somebody's feelings or say something mean And I would say, you know, will you apologize? Can you please apologize? And they would say, I'm sorry. And then I'd say, sorry for what? Sorry for what? To have them name it, what exactly it was that they were sorry for. I didn't want some Band-Aid apology where you just say, I'm sorry. And you go on to what you're doing. So it's one of those things for me that is 
a moment where I practice what I preach, you know? So then when I make my mistake, then I need to be explicitly clear to them what I am sorry for. And so that's where it starts for me and, and really being willing to openly acknowledge my failings, you know, my, my errors. Um, and I think that's been an important thing. Saying sorry for me has not been an easy thing in my life because I think, well, I, as you were saying that I was thinking, you know, it takes some serious inner resources to be able to do that. Cause as a parent, you think, Oh, if I say this, Am I going to, you know, lose my authority if I say this? Uh, is my child going to hold this against me in the future? Or like, you know, in other words, is this going to work in our relationship? You know, and and so, you know, what what has been your experience, Karen? I think that they are appreciative. I think that they are appreciative that it opens a dialogue. You know, one of the things that I think it opened up our relationship for is for our kids to be able to tell us when we've done something that's hurt them or upset them or made them mad. Um, Those are not easy conversations. And I think why it's been really hard for me to apologize um, in the span and arc of my life is that the apology and admitting your own mistake or failing. And that word keeps coming back to me failing. And I think that's part of my inner dialogue. That's part of my inner critic voice talking about. And when, when you're apologizing, that means you messed up that you did something wrong, that you weren't good enough. Um, so I, I do, I have a really brutal inner dialogue and I, I feel like shame for me, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is shame a self-protective emotion? And what I mean by that is, do we default to feelings of shame either toward ourselves or by shaming other people so that we don't have to feel those deeper, more painful feelings of at a rock bottom level, being inadequate, being not good enough. Um, I find, and I will bring up this, I think we shared it last time, that when I am in certain situations, I resort to blame, not quite shame, but blame to me is sort of a shaming tactic. And I think it is really self-protective for me to not have to admit my own inadequacies by pointing or deflecting the attention somewhere else. And the converse is true too. When I share with my husband something that he's done that has hurt or upset me, it often triggers in him a shame response where he feels he's not good enough, that he couldn't do it right, that whatever he does is not enough. And then it leaves me feeling unseen and unheard. And like like the hijack of the conversation shifts and we never resolve 
the pain point. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, well, so the original uh, question you had was, um, does does shame protect us in some way, right? Right. And and self-criticism is really the function of shame. If shame is a noun, self-criticism is the verb. It's what it's what shame does, you know. So then a similar question is, does self-criticism serve us in some way? And so uh, you can, I I would say the answer to both questions are yes. Um, The reason why we internalize negative or devaluing messages is because we instinctively, if we um, have within our own head the voices that will come at us if we make a similar mistake, we're less likely to make the same mistake or to do the same thing, even if it's not a mistake, because we've kind of beat them to the punch, you know? So that's the way, you know, self-criticism works. Sometimes it actually has a kind of self-protective mechanism by, by, um, you know, we don't have to learn over and over again uh, from, by somebody yelling at us that somebody's going to yell at us. So we internalize um, but at the end of the day, most self-criticism is uh, serves the function of increasing safety. That, in fact, the inner critic um, has a has a mission to keep us safe, but just not, unfortunately, not in the best possible way. Um, and but it served us well when we were young. The the ex- Learning to internalize self-criticism kept us out of trouble. But now as adults, maybe a lot of those old messages are just weighing us down in the form of shame. And as you were describing before, sort of keeping us out of being more fully ourselves uh, with other people. But the idea of self-criticism as safety behavior, Mm -hmm. I think, is really important. So we don't want to assume that self-criticism is all bad. What we can assume is that it's probably... Um, not an optimal strategy anymore. And just one last thing, and that is that um, internalizing devaluing messages uh, uh, sometimes is just plain toxic. You know, it doesn't protect us from anything. If there's a caregiver who just hates us, who loathes us, who despises us, and they just say horrible things, then the message we internalize serve no function at all. It's just corrosive. But usually the inner critic sounds kind of like the critical version of a caregiver or a critical version of society. And and uh, the fact that we've internalized this stuff has been um, not all bad, but in the present, probably not very helpful either. In part two of my conversation with Dr. Germer, we talk about what shame does to the body physiologically and also what the antidote to shame is. So stay tuned for part two. I'm Karen Osborne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Living in the Sandwich Zone. 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you like this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Like, subscribe, follow the podcast, and share it with a friend. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, one of the best ways you can support me is rating and reviewing the podcast there. You can follow me on Instagram at karen.e.osborne. That's O-S-B-O-R-N-E. Or if you want to become an insider, a club sandwich member, click the link in the show notes and join my private Facebook group. Until next time, remember to add yourself to your caregiving list and take a moment today and do something that brings you joy.